0: Let's, let's, let's start the interview portion of the interview, because <laughs> I know, I know, I know London over. can like literally talk about uh, 90s comics all day. And it would be so tight. Just yes. for the record, I read the Max and wasn't into it. Probably, your- I, I, read it in mid- I read it in my mid-twenties, it wasn't like a formative youth experience for me. I'm, I'm, sure, oh, sure. If it, I'm sure if I'd am sure if i like watched Evangelion for the first time in my twenties, I would hate it. Like. You, some some things you got to get at the right time. You can't, you can't
1: open the Evangelion door. You can't be like, let's get to the actual interview anyway, so <laughs> Neon Genesis Evangelion <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, I did
0: an entire away. episode I'm sure it's <laughs> out of your system by now
2: no, no, it, it never gets never out, out, of out, out of your
3: system, of your system, system
2: man, man. <laughs> I have not yeah, seen it I'm Those, yet, like, those thorns her.
3: just deeper, yeah
2: She's got seven eyes, and
1: she grows people, like...
2: Wait, wait what? Jesus, yeah. okay. I, like, I, I mean, I have managed somehow to, you know, get to age 34 without actually knowing what Eva is about. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm super fine with, because I really do want to watch it, um, but under, you know, the correct conditions. <clears throat> Correct conditions being yeah. whatever my friends who are obsessed with it agree with each other are the correct conditions, which at some point I will manage to secure. But in the meantime, it's great. I'm just, I, I, I figure there are aver problems.
3: that the correct way to watch Ava is a subject that will get a lot of people who care about Ava literally strangling each other. In my uh-huh. I, i'm here so, for that
2: actually I, that's okay like a, all right. part of my but enjoyment you... of these things is like just but, getting to sense what where all the tendrils of nerdery reach <laughs> it's great all that i'm
3: saying is that if you're waiting for a unanimous or kind of consensus opinion <laughs> on the subject you may be waiting for a while <laughs> mm.
0: <laughs> i mean the, the only real way to watch ava is to be 14 and very sad That's um, true. Yeah. Aww. but Aww. uh <laughs> um that's how most people have encountered it, and why it's I found it when
1: I was like very six. Sad. They were wow. showing it on they were showing it on HBO, and I was just flipping through, and I was like, "Oh shit, those designs are amazing!" And then, like an hour later, I was like, "My whole brain hurts." <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> this explains that's so much.
3: Imagine this is my relationship with Vampire Hunter D. Actually, um, I, I, you know, <laughs> Ava, I watched when I was a teenager, and and I had the very classic Ava experience. But Vampire Hunter D, they played a Bodlerized, very bad dub of it on TNT one night in the mid to early '90s, and I <laughs> happened. We didn't. We barely had a television. We almost never watched it. But my parents, who are like really not comics people not anime people not science fiction people at all may have like turned on the tv as they were looking for saturday night live and so like oh vampires this looks like something max would be into come here max <laughs> and so i watched like the second half of it not having any clue what was going on and it probably did a great deal to mess me up in, in good and generative ways
0: hmm. good i'm glad yeah um, that's the hope <laughs> that's the hope good I'm 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 really interested in what um Amal if you ever get around to watching Evangelion yeah. like what what a 34 year old would feel watching Ava for the first time that's that's so weird to me
2: I fully expect I will I will write about it in some capacity you should uh, yeah
0: do, do a, a, a whole blog post do it yeah
2: my, my experience a pod,
0: make a podcast do, do one episode per podcast <laughs> Max,
2: do you want to
3: do that podcast <laughs> yeah. sure yeah sounds that sounds great i mean it'd be really interesting for me to see what your angle on it would be coming at it fresh from as a 34 year old because i revisit the show once every while i don't necessarily rewatch mm, yeah. the whole I did thing it was but... on
0: netflix like a lot of people yeah. like picked it up again on netflix and realized oh wow it's got this whole other bunch of other layers that we've never seen before
3: Right. And my memory of one of the things I loved about it when I was a kid was not just that there were these 14 year old protagonists who you're obviously supposed to empathize with. But there are like three or maybe four generations, if you're counting Fyutsky, of characters who are all going through the shit that the people at their age go through. So there's there's an episode that focuses on the fact that the slightly older Like the late 20s, early 30s generation of characters who are the sort of mentor figures and guardians of our teenage protagonists are all like all of their friends are getting married and they're having to go to weddings and have awkward conversations at them about what everybody's doing with their lives. And when I was a kid, I thought, oh, this is going to be very relatable later in life. And then I went back and revisited it when I was about those characters age. I was like, oh shit. So, you know, I wonder what happens when you're watching it and you're coming in at Misato and Kaji's age. Uh, mm. Certainly for me, the center of gravity of the show naturally shifted. And I felt like, oh, I'm empathizing with these people. And these kids are folks that I really want to help out, but can't because there's only so much you can do to help somebody through yeah, being a teenager.
0: Like, on my rewatching, Masato seemed like more of a protagonist than Shinji did.
3: Yeah, and, absolutely. Um,
0: it, even, um, what's the name? Um, Shinji's dad seemed yeah, way more. Yeah. Gendo, yeah, Gendo Akari. He seems to have way more agency and be more in the plot this time round. And before he was just like a father figure who was stern and bad and mean all the time.
3: Yeah,
0: but, <laughs> yeah. But when, uh, when I'm fifty, I'm his age. I'll realize. He, oh wait, it was all about him. Which yeah, <laughs> you could kind of tell. I love it. how
1: uh, but, how um, like uh like. Wagnerian and like it, it almost feels like Goethe at times with like everyone is rippling with tragedy
0: <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. but um so I wanted to I want to start by really addressing one of the key issues in the book uh, the the book being for those of us who, who just <laughs> Wait, what in, are we, yeah what uh, are
2: we talking about <laughs> who are we why are we doing
0: yeah, good welcome oh, to, good to
1: death questions. sentence
3: um Are you sure you (laughs) haven't seen Evangelion?
1: (laughs) I'll admit that half of of the interviews that I love the most are the ones that sort of on paper go off the rails because then you actually get to hear people... You get to hear the things that as a reader, sometimes even just as a board journalist, you want to hear from people who make stuff, which is like like this background, like lattice work that informs, obviously at some point informs the work, but is hard harder to get to if you ask directly like if you ask what were the influences for this book you're going to be like I don't know I sat down and wrote <laughs> like, I... but you can yeah. by <laughs> accidentally milling around in that kind of background information you can kind of go like oh well there are elements of this So and they mentioned that they internalized it at the stage. so maybe that's uh, a part of
0: mm, yeah but, but we exactly. still have to like mention the title yes, of the book I feel you <laughs> know <laughs> <laughs> Presumably. Yeah.
2: It's just that we're... It's only that we're, you know, it's a book about time travel, and we're beginning with the middle and end, and at some point we'll get back to the beginning, yeah. for sure.
0: Of course. So, this is How You Lose the Time War, by Amal el Mutar and Max Gladstone, who are joining us today. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hi. See, see, this is just as compelling as talking about even general. <laughs> um, <laughs> Absolutely. But, but uh so obviously my first question on the back cover, uh, in the back flap, you're both holding swords, you're back to back. Max has got some pretty decent kind of Morpheus glasses. Oh no, they're not Morpheus glasses, <laughs> sorry, they they do have uh things on. Yeah. So you seem to be holding uh Max a kind of Chinese style sword. Um is going for a more traditional um Kind of double edged blade. Uh, So if it came down to it, the two of you, you both got a a sword of your choice. Can't be like a a big sword, needs to be a long sword or shorter. And you're just to the death. It's it's happened (laughs) to the death today.
2: No backup. No backup. I mean, I feel well, like, look,
0: to look, to like
2: the fact that Max and I are back to back in that photo suggests that we are actually about to take down an army of some twenty-five moocs who are uh, just, you know, there to give us grief. But obviously, we're going to destroy them. We're not. Or go
3: out anything. hilariously in a Butch and Sundance kind of style. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know, tomato,
1: tomato. Yeah. Lurch forward with your two. Okay. It always
3: looks like the one until lurch forward
1: other. with your two blades before you get lit up because you realized these mooks brought guns. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Doesn't matter That's how cool your sword is. What? So, but seriously, though if <laughs> if it came down to it, you you versus you, who's 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 coming away of that one?
2: Uh, well, here's the thing. I think that Max is by far the better and more experienced swordsman. But I think that of the two of us, he's also a lot nicer. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, so uh, I'm so i not sure
3: I'd go that far. <laughs> You're very nice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you are very, very nice. You were very nice. I don't know. I couldn't. I can't fathom that. Not even. No, honestly, not even jokingly. I love Max too much to destroy. So him. then Max would also win we now. write such good books together. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah. No, like I couldn't. I couldn't do it. Yet.
2: <laughs>
1: the darkness roiling in Max's heart would compel him to victory.
3: <laughs> uh,
0: this glass is a pretty. He He's obviously got some stuff going on.
3: Those are, honestly, uh, those are those are transitions glasses. Those are the <laughs> ones that, like, darken in the sunlight. So I didn't have any other choice. I got them because uh, I have very light-sensitive eyes, which, of advantage, you can, like, kind of navigate in the dark pretty easily. Disadvantage, if you're out in, in sunlight and you don't have a hat or something, the whole world is, is overwhelming. So, um, yeah. but it was not an intentional Morpheus situation. But once you uh, add... Okay. The Trust little thingy one. glasses without much frame on them and the long black coat and you've got a sword and everything, then you look like somebody who's going to get profiled in a high school in the late 90s.
0: True. <laughs> yeah. I used to... I have, I have also very bad uh, um, light-sensitive eyes, and um, I had to wear prescription sunglasses to school, and mm. um, children aren't very kind. <laughs> and, uh, no,
3: they're not. No, they really...
0: No, Speaking of think, the roiling practice no. in the heart. Yeah. That 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 kind of indirectly led to me staying up till 2 a.m. every Wednesday to watch Evangelion. <laughs> oh my god.
3: <laughs> Aww. It's the hedgehog's dilemma.
0: It is, yeah. I, I can't get close to someone, otherwise they'll steal my glasses and throw them away and break them. You're like, again. I'm gonna
3: rip <laughs> And then you have to. <laughs> I'm gonna rip up that big
0: tetrahedron.
1: <laughs> I need my geometry blood. <laughs> Yes, one of the
2: only things I do know about Evangelion is that at some point Gendo, who is a GIF, I guess, uh, has glasses on that are sort of television tuned to a dead channel. e. Is that a thing from Eva?
0: No, he kind mean, of he kind of pushes them up and to catch the light, which oh, is kind of the a weird anime trope. But uh, ah. yeah, I, I should have learned to do that. But the kids at school would probably be be or everyone will be my friend if i could do cool stuff like that
3: yeah
0: instead they threw me on the train tracks again Uh, that that literally happened um wow
3: did you you get out
1: before the train hit you
0: well yes that's good and he's a ghost to
3: this day (laughs) (laughs) shocking (laughs) twist in reversal i spent over a year working (laughs) with you and i didn't know
1: that you were murdered by a train
2: <laughs> I mean, who That's... came up with "death sentence" as yeah, a title yeah, for this? So,
0: uh, yeah, so we go. it Could very much be <laughs> that I'm a ghost this whole time.
2: I mean, this is absolutely just par for the course in terms of like the Welcome to Night Vale stable of podcasts. So, you know, one of the voices on the radio has been dead this whole time uh, is is pretty pretty standard, I think.
3: Yeah, it seems reasonable to me.
0: But uh, okay, it let's, let's talk about the. Let's talk about the book though, because the, the, the book the book is, book damn is really good. good. I mean, so, <laughs> thank you, Yeah, yeah. That's okay. That's book uh, book out the way. More <laughs> evangelion now. Okay, so no, thank you so much. So, um, let's let's just start off with a bit of a summary. There's two spies. Uh, well, to call them spies is doesn't quite do justice to what they're capable of. These are people who are from the end of history like billions of years into the future maybe they have technology beyond anything we can conceive of they are like goku level op they're just like (laughs) just all it's crazy and um they travel through time um and somehow they come across each other and they fall in love but uh I'm guessing there's way more to it than that.
2: Uh, like, well, like in the sense that the the book happens. <laughs> <laughs> um they they are definitely uh so they're they're operatives from opposite sides of a of a time war, which means they do have, you know, all of time and space at their disposal, but they're also kind of outside of it. Um suspend your physics disbelief for a moment. Um and, That's uh, one of those
3: challenges you have whenever you're trying to do anything with time travel, right? Does meta time exist, or does it not exist? And and to what exactly. extent do alternate timelines relate to one another? Um, and we're in a kind of meta timey space. So basically, you have two potential deep futures that are mutually contradictory as far as either of them are concerned, and in opposition to one another.
0: Um, the agency in the garden, right?
3: The agency in the garden, exactly. And they are trying to ensure one another's continued and uncontestable existence by, at this point, eliminating the other one. All other possible futures have been subsumed into one of these two or manipulated. There's a sort of trope in time travel that time travel necessitates, if you ever were to figure out a time machine, and other people were to find out about it, then a number of futures would branch off of that from that moment. And the futures would continue changing one another and coming back and shifting things around. But the one thing you can be reasonably certain about is that at some point, someone will come back in time and prevent you from inventing the time machine, which is the reason that no one will ever invent a time machine. Um, (laughs) Doesn't mean that time machines are necessarily impossible. It's just that at some point, They'll always be uninvented. Um, And this is a situation that's kind of like that. These two sides both want to be certain of their existence, and they're deeply anxious and afraid that the other one is going to close them out entirely. So they've sent agents back into the past to infiltrate many parallel timelines and shift them so that they'll lead causally to one side or to the other. And these agents are... Of these sort of distant futures, they have access to enormous technology and skills and powers, and they also have the patience of immortality. You can go anywhere, do anything um, to try to overcome your adversary.
0: Mm, yeah, there's a bit. But
3: they're I... also separated from the um, from the futures that they're mutually represented. Mm.
0: Yeah, there's a so bit. They... Uh... Oh, sorry, go on.
2: Oh, I was just going to say that the the entire situation, too, is that these they can't confront each other directly, uh, that they there is a kind of cold war essentially going on between these two mutually exclusive futures. So they can only thwart each other uh, in ways that are upthread from their their current moments and stuff. So they that is where the agents come in and why um and they they'll have like different methodologies uh in terms of how they go and what they do and how they manipulate things but um but the esen- like the the essential core of this is that as much as we're describing it in great detail this is not the way it is in the book like the idea is yeah. that in the book um all of this vastness is backgrounded so that you can focus on actually a a much smaller and more intimate story uh happening in the midst of this vastness uh and that the experience of everything that we've just described is not so much the meat of the story as it is like scenery flashing by when you're on a train you know um Mm. that you're much more focused on what's happening there in front of you than um than everything that you're moving through at a speed that precludes your interacting with it.
0: Yeah, I, I read um there was one little interview I read. It wasn't a big one, though, where it was on Medium or mm-hmm. something. And someone had a criticism that they didn't really get how the time travel worked or what the ideologies behind the agency in the Garden War, and they they basically wanted more. They wanted an info dump at some point, basically.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And yeah, that was. But yeah, it's, it's can... not like you forgot to put in the information here. This is very obviously, you know, you weren't writing a cyber war story. You're writing a I, love story. I can
1: I can refer to yeah, that yeah. Uh, that criticism as uh, like beguilingly illiterate. <laughs> and then <that> it's like <laughs> oh, you read yeah. the whole book, and at no point did you go. The book is clearly not about that. At no point you got to the end and you're like they <laughs> forgot to say this. Like, I, just, I find that <laughs> remarkable that they're like, oh. and they, uh, it's like, oh, this 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 prose is so so lush and poetic. It's it's, it's clearly like a um, uh, it, it felt like it riffed in the same realm as like uh, David Mitchell's work of being. It plays with these genre <laughs> concepts, but in order to tell an actually fairly traditional kind of literary fiction story, and to to do so with rich poeticism, but just using genre elements to like intensify some of and literalize some of the poetic things. So instead of being like um love letters written in beast stings being like a cute metaphor, it's now also real. Um and somehow someone read this and was like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, but how are they traveling through time? <laughs> like <laughs> that's like <laughs> Did I have a Delorean? And I'm just I like, mean, how are is, you?
4: This is the thing how,
1: how is this going over your head? You, it feels like it should be hitting you <laughs> right in the face. Like,
2: no. The the funny thing is too that um, there's uh, so I because I um, because I also review books and and so uh, I it is my job to read a whole bunch of books. I, I have been becoming increasingly aware this year of. Uh, there's just, you know, to me, an unusual number of time travel stories that feature queer women or foreground queer women um, in these stories. Yeah, I'll stuff. say. Um, um, so, and they're all super, super different from each other. Um, they all uh, are, I mean, so there, there's ours, but there's also Annalie Newitz's Future of Another Timeline, there's Cameron Hurley's The Light Brigade, there's Kate uh The Psychology of Time Travel, there's uh Kate Hartfield's Alice Payne arrives and Alice Payne Rides. There's um sort so I haven't read this one yet, but it just came to my attention recently. Uh Sandra Newman's The Heavens, I think. Um is sort of like that as well. Yeah, it's it sounds amazing. It's it's a about a woman who there oh, I can't I'm not gonna remember which direction the time travel goes in, but um she keeps on sort of flashing back to a future that is increasingly getting worse, but that future is like our past that we have actually experienced. So anyway, there's like, but the, um, so the, the reason I bring this up though, uh, I mean, I have many reasons why I bring it up in different contexts. One of which is to point out that most of these books were being written in, tw- actually all of these books were being written in 2016 um, for, uh, which makes the framing of the, uh, the, Interest in, if not obsession with, the idea of timelines—good and bad—being um, yeah. sort of part <laughs> of the bedrock of why we're writing these things in 2016. Between, and I actually I love the fact that you know on this podcast you've got uh, London. You're you're based in this. I place, am. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right, so it's just that you've got you know people experiencing Brexit and people experiencing Trump, and it's great.
0: Uh, we we get opinion. a lot of knowledge of that, possibly.
2: <laughs> right. Um. So so this is the thing though, that you've got all of these stories coming out this year. Um. Uh, that uh, that are foregrounding these ideas and playing with these ideas, and they all, to varying degrees, will talk about um, the mechanics of the time travel in different ways. Like Kate Kate Mascarenas' book, The Psychology of Time Travel, which I absolutely adored. um, First, uh, has time travel in a determined universe. So, you know, the future has always already happened and there is no changing it, Um, but you can travel to it and you can encounter yourself. And there are terminologies for Encountering your a self that is future to your present moment or past from your present moment and stuff like that. Um, and there's uh, but there is a there's so much made of the uh, mechanics of the time travel itself. It's very actually grounded in physics. It's very like it was invented by four women in the nineteen. 19- 50s uh, and like there's this whole infrastructure around it which is a big part of the story Um, and then you've got like you know Cameron Hurley's which is uh, similarly like it's it's in such a military context that you get a lot more of how exactly this is happening and to what end and whatever Um, but I love the fact that that there is such a breadth within our engagement of time travel of just engaging the mechanism itself that we We are like Max and I were not interested in the mechanism of time travel at all. Like there is we we didn't we wanted to talk about uh, we we were tired of, you know, the second that you have time travel, you kind of uh, are necessarily playing with. uh, any one of a number of tropes and have to kind of account for grandfather paradoxes and um, is your universe, you know, quantumly entangled or is it determined or all sorts of those things. And what we wanted instead was to dwell in the fact that there is a kind of time travel inherent in writing letters and that that time travel is one that enables and is sort of fueled by an intimacy that is like no other and that we wanted to get into that and talk about that and um and experience that and ultimately uh come to something that wasn't just an a, that, that what I don't want to diminish adventure stories cuz I, I love them um but that
4: no it's the just the the like
2: yeah, the time travel here is like the point of it is not an adventure story the point of it is a different story anyway, that's mm. Putting my soapbox away.
3: And maybe to say the same thing in, uh, in slightly different words, um, time travel in science fiction especially tends to be focused a great deal on causality. Yes. Um, this happens, therefore this happens, therefore this happens, which then makes the thing that first happened impossible, so therefore something else has to happen. Uh, those kinds of cascading domino stories. And I think there's a... Way in which that storytelling corresponds very neatly to the mechanics of the adventure plot, where somebody gets a mission, they must carry out the mission, they encounter this problem, and so they must do this other thing, uh, cause cascades into effect, cascades into effect. But there are other sorts of stories that involve the notions of time travel. Um, you know, you could, if I'm going to be like really, I don't know. Tweed jacket wearing about this whole thing. Like, oh, please mem- don't No, I mean, uh, uh, you know, in search of. Oh, lost that's time, the one I was going to say. Yeah, time travel. Novel, I was sitting here like right? Proust, Proust
1: yeah. the whole Madeline thing, the whole time to the It's Proust. Like,
2: right, yeah,
3: yes. Yeah. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, I didn't. Exactly. I didn't waste all my money going to university to not bring up Proust as much, right. as, much right. as I possibly can. I'm,
1: I'm still go. in all debt. Good. I gotta. I gotta get here. mileage out of this. <laughs> also, those books are little... lovely.
3: <laughs> there we are. Right, so you have a six volume um, narrative masterwork that's using images as, and sensations as gateways to other times and places in order to construct meaning around one person's life. Um, books, any kind of narrative fiction engages in a certain level of time travel, engages in a certain level of, um, of uh, telepathy, sometimes more foregrounded, sometimes less foregrounded. Um, you can look at uh, to the lighthouse where you're jumping around between a bunch of different characters perspectives inhabiting them sometimes and having several characters in a particular page and then we're scamming scanning forward over decades a decade maybe in in hyper fast montage before coming back into this very clear time locked scenario so there are a lot of different ways that narrative fiction can work with time and can work with the concepts of traveling through time and emotions traveling through time and memories traveling through time that aren't as, uh, that are are less interested in direct um, physical cause and effect and are more interested in the ways that uh, you can suddenly be sitting on a park bench um, having a cookie in the autumn and break down crying and it wasn't because of anything that was immediately happening it was because of the fact that six things that are happening that are very subtle combined with 17 things that were happening 20 years ago and then all of a sudden that's where you are Um, and the very specific experience of this that amal and i had as we were working up to the notion of writing a book together was of trading letters back and forth and that very like written hand letters, written by hand letters, and that very physical um, process of writing the letter, imagining then the person receiving the letter, imagining the situation in which they might receive the letter or the spirit they might have while reading it, um, which is very different from the feeling that you get when you're writing a story generally. You're not imagining a sort of broad audience. You're imagining this one specific audience that you may or may not understand very well. Um, You're trying to guess. And they're Meanwhile trying to guess what's actually going on in your mind when you're putting the words on the page that you're putting there. And then you take all of that and you commit it, this what feels like a very vulnerable, fragile, fallible medium um, that's also not easily machine readable, is you know mechanically trackable. People could you could physically open the letter and find out what's inside, but nobody's going to be able to read it as trivially as they could read any of my emails. Nobody's going to be able to uh, build a profile of me as trivially as they could build a profile based on public tweets or even direct message conversations. Um, and it goes out there into the world and it might... If there's only one copy of it. I don't even have a copy of it anymore. So it's like a letter in a bottle. Just a letter. Um, so the, the weirdness of that process ended up being something that we were playing with a lot through the correspondence. And that ended up driving the whole book forward. And this is this is the nice. uh
1: I'm the the about. primary mechanism of of quite a number of um like literary mysteries and literary romance it's like we have um the nearly the entirety of uh that one italo calvino book um on a winter's night a traveler uh,
3: if on a yeah if on a winter's night yeah, a which traveler, is yeah. which is
1: driven by the same thing of like marginalia and um it, notes from one person to another sort of coalescing into uh, this sort of meta-romance. I, there's other elements of that book, obviously, and there's also other elements of your book, but that part holds. Um, we have, even recently, the kind of genre, kind of literary mystery book, The Historian, about um, about Dracula, which is driven much by the same processes of checking I've, and checking
3: I've never read that one. It, it, it,
1: it's that really, great really good. Though. It's... um the loose thing is someone whose family has been investigating the book Dracula which is a a book within their world and in doing so runs into these um <clears throat> it's very much like Umberto Eco where they run into uh libraries with books that reference little bits of it and slowly assemble this notion that there uh incidentally is a Dracula um, and he hunts who you know too much about, <laughs> about Dracula um But, (laughs) but done in this very, um, uh, it's, when you describe it, it's insane. It sounds like this, like genre yarn. And then when you read it, it's this like lush, like, um, Iconian, like literary mystery. Um, so it, it's this wonderfully fertile ground that's been, and we actually have the tradition of this going way, way back. There's elements of, uh, the weird mental, Time travel and the uh, the the power of uh, the singularity of notes in like Don Quixote. It's this like remarkably fertile
3: um, Mm core. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel you know I might be really curious as to your take on this. For me, I feel like we've um, we're coming back into a phase where that sort of work is um, recognized as more mainstream literary. Like there was this period. My angle on it is there was this period in the U S like you know, 50s to 70s or something, maybe a little bit broader than that, where there was this enormous focus on observational realism and a kind of walk away from this formal experimentation and so a lot of the people who are interested in formal experiment landed in science fiction where you could do more of that stuff so um and, and there would be kind of a market for it but now we have um a profusion of more literary works in the u.s anyway that are using the genre tool set sometimes the sort of time travel toolset, tool set like we're talking about and that's one that has uh, a lot of sort of mainstream literary route, but there are also um, stories like uh, Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad, which oh, has yeah. strong surrealist or like not quite realist components to it, which it's then using, like you were saying, to hammer the its own literary home. It's not so much about who built <laughs> the underground railroad and
0: architectural impossibility you (laughs) couldn't no one given given um, an incredible infinite money and time could ever do that it's impossible
3: right (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's 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 totally uh it's it's mind-blowing to even think about the expense involved how did the trains come where are they going but the importance is the (laughs) metaphor and then what it allows him to do with the sort of history of race in america
0: yeah, I'm thinking of that—the uh, person who misreviewed your um, your book, uh, reading the underground that's, railroad. That's
3: I'm why like, I've been laughing.
0: Where did they get cold?
1: Just, like, just <laughs> yeah. like, did they build the trains underground? You can't fit a train through all the entrances they have. They had to have built the trains underground, <laughs> underground railroad.
3: <laughs> this, this is a, sort of. The Neil deGrasse Tyson approach, I guess. Um. I, I
1: I have a oh, yeah. weird defense I mean,
3: of him. I, I think
1: him. he's de- well. I well, not as yeah. a person. There have been some things that <laughs> have come out about him that I don't want to trigger anyone. They're easy to Google. He's accused of some really gross things. that seem very likely that he did them. But outside of that, his no. um his literary criticism, if I can call it, feels very deliberately impish. Like I don't, I don't. Think he takes it as seriously that's as other fair, people yeah. do i think he does it to wind people up and it works every time <laughs>
3: like, <laughs> does, yeah fair
1: enough i think i enough. think
2: that's fair yeah
3: um i, no, I do I think this is try go for it now.
2: oh no i i think that uh i i mean i think that what we're I, so first i i agree max about the uh just i mean i and i have not made a study of this by any means i just know that right now I feel like uh, an antidote to my anytime I start to feel like I'm becoming a little bit jaded about the things that I'm reading and uh, which as a reviewer I feel is sort of like um, you know, carpal tunnel of the soul like you just you know you read so many books and you start to just there's like a kind of repetitive strain injury that happens to your brain, where mm. you just uh, you get you 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 know what's going to happen in this book from you know a couple of pages in and if that no longer excites you then you need to kind of step back and start do some doing some emotional deadlifts so that you can uh actually you know get your um grip strength back up or whatever this metaphor run away from me but um the way that i find myself doing that uh specific, right now is rereading or reading for the first time rather uh, fantasy books written in the um, seventies where I just find that there is so, they're so categorically and texturally different from what I'm reading now that it's difficult to even trace a lineage from them to today. They're like, if I, you know, reading um, the forgotten beasts of Eld by Patricia McKillop, just like just Mm. blew the top off my head, you know, it's such a book. It's it's absolutely incredible. And it's something that I don't like. I, when I talked on Twitter about having read it for the first time, there was this overwhelming response of people saying that book is incredible. That book is incredible. And I did find myself wondering, but if that book were published today, I very much doubt it would have that reception. I think that people would be talking about all sorts of things about that book that are nothing to do with the extraordinary experience of that story. Um and I don't know. So so anyway, there's but we're talking about those things and I don't really want to get into them because I don't wanna I am so not interested in having any conversations about that book beyond isn't it amazing? Um but
3: right, we're not we're not here for the for forgotten beasts of the elder discourse (laughs) at this
2: point. Exactly, exactly. In fact, I want to protect that book from anything resembling that discourse right now. Um so but, but this is but this is what i want like this is i want books that are challenging and provocative in ways that feel slippery and strange uh and that that aren't necessarily you know doing the thing that um that a lot of the books that i've been reading and loving you know to be totally clear uh in the last 10 years have been doing um so i get really excited by books that are doing something that uh that might be called experimental even in an academic context and i i mean you know mm. it, one of the one of the books that most delights me in terms of its reception compared to what it's doing is um uh nora Jameson's broken earth trilogy which is doing such staggering stuff narration wise uh, that I hadn't seen recently in genre stuff and that I would have thought would have been very off putting for a lot of people, especially because there's like there's always some there's always someone complaining somewhere about second person present tense, which I love very much to read and to write both. Uh, Mm -hmm. And there's always someone complaining about it. And the people who tend to complain about it tend to also be the people who complain about insufficient world building in books that are not about world building. But um, so- There's an epic
3: fantasy reader out there who does seem to really want a story that has as little style in it as possible. And what I mean by that is not like, it, that there's sort of this house style that's like a book written kind of the way that Robert Jordan would write a book.
2: Third right, person right.
3: tense, limited with a general sense of a particular character's experience and narrative and language, but not a great sort of opening of their psyche. It's more like, you know who this person is, you know how they act, you're looking from sort of behind their shoulder and they're acting consistently. Matt Coffin is rarely going to sit down and have a deep introspective think session about what it's like to be Matt Coffin, and and that's one of the reasons I love the Jordan books and devoured them over and over again when I was in in uh, high school. But all and remain very fond of them to this day. It's consistent. It's readable. It's it's as easy as a clean running brook. And I think there is definitely a readership out there that wants. Things, Stuff that is work that is isomorphic to that, that gives you a very similar sort of um, experience. So, you know, I know how to read this book, therefore I know how to read that book, therefore I know how to read that book. Whereas something like the Broken Earth trilogy, it, it teaches you how to read it very successfully, but it does need to teach you. And if you go in having only read Doorstop or Epic Fantasy, you do not yet know how to read the Broken we, Earth trilogy. You run into this. So, you need to read it.
1: We, and we need to, what, what? why did I begin it that way? We run into that problem quite a bit across the span of not even just um, literature, but like any kind of written word. We, like there's this mm. uh, implicit sentiment in a lot of people that things like philosophy or theory texts are um, in, almost impossibly dense and impossibly hard to get into and that this is done deliberately. And sometimes that is true, but it's true less so than people tend to present it because it's similar to like, well, it's a different form and it requires a slightly different reading set. And if you approach it going, I want to be able to read this in the same way that I'm able to read X, Y, or Z other unrelated thing, and then find yourself unsuccessful, that isn't necessarily just a failure on part of the work. Likewise, there's this reactionary tug and pull of people who feel the need to say that like Ulysses and Finnegan's way are bad in order to prove some kind of, and it's like read, readable right. texts are also, or easily readable texts are also good. They're doing a different thing. Like we don't have to blame. <laughs> yeah, and Against Wake isn't bad because it isn't like this other book. They're not doing the same thing. Um,
0: yeah, we, right. we saw that very recently with the in another medium entirely with that whole uh, Martin Scorsese saying the oh god
3: that thing yeah. yeah.
0: People, what
3: yeah. did you say? I, I, I came on right. board I so was, um, yesterday, and there was like the third layer of discourse about the exact this. Qu- and I the didn't...
1: exact quote is he said, uh, like the poll quote that people have been riffing off of, because he actually said a lot of stuff, but the one segment was those Marvel movies aren't cinema, uh, they're theme parks. Mm-hmm. And then he elaborated on that saying, yeah. he said cinema to me, and he did include the t- to me part which I think is relevant and gets skipped mm-hmm. um, are real human people conveying real human emotions to other real human people. Um, and so it's like, I, I don't know how, I don't know how people are getting worked up over this. Cause it's like, well, he's right. And also he's wrong in all obvious ways. Like do the Marvel films contain mm-hmm.
4: that?
1: Yeah. Do they, do they do it necessarily as well as some of these other movies? No, I don't. I think you'd be silly to say that. Are they trying to? No. Like, I don't I don't look at Avengers yeah. and go, you know, that wants to rival the works of Bellatar.
3: I mean, they're definitely... The thing that I find really amazing about the Marvel movies, not to necessarily veer the conversation, is that they managed to build a framework for making really consistently great B-plus to A-minus movies. Like... Like, they're very, it's like, oh, I can walk into a Marvel movie and feel like my $12 are going to be reasonably well spent. I've never, have I ever, uh, there are a couple that are sort of borderline here, and I haven't seen all of them. But my general expected value is I'm going to walk in and have, like, a fun night at the movies, and maybe something will happen. And the cool thing for me is that within that framework, they've made room for some really cool things to happen. like. Thor Ragnarok managed to be a very effective Taika Waititi movie that happened to have a $350, $350 million budget or whatever it had, 150, I don't know, large, large numbers budget and like Star of the Incredible Hulk and Thor. So that's great. And to me, this is also kind of my experience of reading like big two comics versus yeah. reading some, like, something like The Max, for example, like, you know, you can't, I'm never going to be expecting to open a big two comic and come out with the experience of reading the max or zero girl or Sandman or even, you know, like the the comics that have a little bit more to sort of build their own world. But sometimes it happens. Sometimes you're opening Tom King's Mr. Miracle and it's just this like, Holy shit.
1: shit Fucking love. Um, I, I, I love the (laughs) Mr. He did. Um, I totally as, agree with everything you're saying. I just dad, wanted to
3: chime in with like that is a yeah. goddamn great run. It is. It is. And like as a new dad, it hit me very much where I live. Um but uh yeah, like so the, you you have these you know they've managed to make the Marvel movies have managed to make something that feels to me a lot like the Marvel universe or the DC universe, a stable storytelling platform about larger than life people in which you can execute a uh, super by the numbers, super powered person needs to stop super powered person from doing super powered thing sort of plot. And you can also do other stuff. Sometimes it's more inventive. Sometimes it's more interesting. Sometimes it's less. Um, so that, that, that's cool. But I think that does speak to the theme parkiness of it. yeah and Maybe not the way that Scorsese means it, right? But that when you're going to a well-run theme park, you're not aware that Futureland exists when you're in fantasy land. You can't see anything from future land. You're in this corner. There's continuity, so you can walk from fantasy to future land, but when you're in future land, you're in a different artistic environment with a different experience that is itself sort of inter- internally self-consistent, and you got there by just walking straight from fantasy land. I don't it, know if It I'm does,
1: right. I, I think it also, that's, that's it touches, touches on it, yeah. a thing that I think that, um, and it's back Actually, is, is relevant to your book. Too. That's right, baby. We always bring it back around. <laughs> is that oh, the book? Uh, is that um in uh, genre work, regardless of whether it's sci-fi, fantasy, horror, any any of that kind of stuff, even uh, thrillers and mysteries, have always required the training of walking the line between underground and mainstream work, between personal and corp or personal and corporate uh, created work that those dichotomies, um, which we sometimes see overly simplified as being like, there is a morally correct choice to lean in one direction or the other resolve themselves a bit more dialectically. It's like, well, any, even, any, even decent personal work is going to touch the hands of if they're working with a good publisher, it's going to touch the hands of something that resembles a corporate apparatus it's just that those people are trained to respond in slightly different ways so you don't immediately spurn it the way that say a new star wars novel may get spurned by certain people or alternatively for the people who predominantly like mainstream stuff they may look at like anna kavan's ice and know what the hell is this i wanted a halo book and learning <laughs> that learning how to walk that line becomes part of living in that world um because it's it, it's hard to imagine that someone can seriously like fantasy or science fiction and then say that like Jack Kirby and Stanley produced nothing that moves you nothing not one thing like oh i enjoy comics as a medium walt simonson has never produced something that i think is rich like it, it becomes very very bizarre to think about that. And it doesn't mean that, say, Love and Rockets doesn't also move you. Um, These are, we learn how to navigate that space and go, well, I go to one for one thing and I go to this for another. Um, and yeah, that's, I, I feel like the Scorsese uh, Marvel thing was remarkably easy to parse on its face because like, I think about Martin Scorsese's body of work and I'm like, well, no fucking duh, he doesn't think the Marvel movies are his cup of tea. What about any of his movies would make me think that he thinks that? Like, I don't I don't see how that's scandalous at all. That would be like if Werner Herzog was like, Zay, I'm not in my kinds of movies. I'm like, well, yeah, they're, they're not nearly as miserable. Now, I like your movies more, Werner. Admittedly, you're more my cup of tea. But, you know, I don't...
2: Didn't... didn't... Werner Herzog make a cameo appearance in Parks and Recreation, and he
1: played himself. I mean, (laughs) he's really
2: goddamn funny. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I love that part. Yeah, everyone, like I don't know, I feel like everyone. I mean, he's much
1: cheekier than people present, him. and he's way more self-aware of his image.
2: Um, I
0: I, I've actually met him, and um, he. Oh really? I, I put on. Uh, very briefly. Very, very briefly. Put on a, um, like, for kids to meet filmmakers <laughs> and um, ask them questions. I mean, kids uh, like high, high, okay. high, high school age kids. You know, they've, they've probably seen Evangelion at that point, so they're as miserable as he is. <laughs> but um, I remember him saying something like, um, to be a great filmmaker, you must take off your shoes and walk for five days in a desert. And some, something along those lines and i was just looking at him and going like yeah you, you know who you are when you say those things you, you know what you're doing he's, come on let the mask he's, slip a little bit he's doing his bit uh. yeah he's 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 playing he's playing word of herzog at that point but he also mm-hmm. made uh bad lieutenant portico new orleans yeah. so who knows the most chaos neutral film that, ever made that
1: film is fucking amazing. It, you yeah. no matter so what you key. want it to give you it decides to give you something else and anytime you think that you've gotten used to that movie nope <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> it's a good one
2: here's the the, the thing that i um I did to kind of take a sort of macro step back from this because i uh am in fact on hiatus from twitter until november 5th and have been for some time so stay presently- on Hey, I mean, I love um, you.
3: It's great. I know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you. I know. I'm. I'm.
3: I'm at this point logging on, retweeting good stuff people are saying about our book, and then logging I'm, off. More. This
2: or is or. actually. The, I mean, that was that was my mo, and that was the only thing making Twitter bearable for me for the last little while. And then, uh, and so I'm a little sad that I have, uh, you know, stepped back from that. But it does mean, slightly infuriatingly, that I am still getting Twitter filtered for me by my beloved husband, uh, because if we don't both go off Twitter at the same time, there is this sharp uptick in him talking to me about Twitter and the things that are on it. And (laughs) um, so I am aware of the fact that this happened, but um, I am pre-exhausted by the fact that this happened and very annoyed that that this conversation is happening at all instead of like, yes, Martin Scorsese has an opinion sure why that's fine does anyone really feel like the marvel movies need to be defended right. from martin scorsese are, are they suffering mm-hmm. are they are they are they not in fact defining our uh t- t- like the industry at the moment are they i mean i'm sorry i, I missed the part where those films are downtrodden and need any like nerds on Twitter to get mad on their behalf, you know, like right. New York Comic Con is on, at like, as we speak, and I don't know, I just, it feels so unnecessary. And like, there are so, 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 so many more interesting and worthy and nourishing and thoughtful conversations anyone could be having about anything. But instead, there's this kind of just, I don't know, Not not only not only the fact that people are genuinely angry about this, but that they are performing that anger somewhere where I cannot see them. It, so it's actually fine, but just we, anyway, we run yeah. into
1: this sometimes. And um, we've talked about this on the, on the show a lot too, is that there is um, there's been a recurrent wave. I mean, it, it's not necessarily new, but we're in, we're in the midst of another wave of it, of things of people wanting to defend popular work in popular media, regardless whether it's music, film, books. Um, And there, there is a good reason for that, but they sometimes will have a lay misunderstanding of where those defenses need to take place. Like we don't need to defend young adult literature out in the public square because that stuff does sell. People are reading it. People are being moved by it. Like it's the fact that um, the critical world um approached them not quite correctly, and so it was it was the reverse equivalent of like, I'm approaching this like it's Ulysses and finding it thin by that metric, so I don't really get it. And it's like, well, that's not the right lens to approach this from, to to really get the proper critical um comprehension of it. It's like that those are the spaces where defense and finding uh, suitably uh, talented and suitably skilled um, critics. Uh, To engage with those works But in the popular sphere They are quite literally already the dominant Popular form Like we don't We don't need someone telling people Like oh well actually Taylor Swift is good It's like she is absolutely fucking loaded She is so rich Every tour sells so many tickets Like she hasn't Not had a number one record Ever Ever All of her records have gone number one at some point. So that's not the space where, say, her songwriting needs to be defended. Um,
2: I think it is. Here's where I think it is. And and I think this is the first time that I've actually had this this moment of insight. And I'm hoping that it will stick around and not actually just vanish into the ether as I try to articulate it. I think the because I do have a lot of sympathy for for this response um partly because and and, so there's sympathy in this frustration from me in equal measure because i also work in a university context you know and i have for a stupid number of years at this point and so i'm i simultaneously managed to inhabit a space where i am constantly defending popular works and genre works and stuff to a critical apparatus that disproportionately affects whether or not something ends up canonized or in syllabi or what have you, right? And then at the same time that that's happening, I find myself also needing to defend work that I love from uh, my genre-loving friends who have this sort of just this knee-jerk reaction to anything that smacks of like lit snobbery, whether or not it is in fact that or like, and and the thing that i'm beginning to understand about that reaction about the latter reaction uh is that it's i think more to do less to do with the way these things are discussed in a public sphere removed from them and more about um more about a perception of the things that one loves by people who are perceived to be more powerful than you. So if like if Martin Scorsese ends up standing in for, you know, an establishment of of some kind which is simultaneously very very far away from you but also kind of your dad or your uncle or someone from a previous generation who um Whose, whose opinion of you and of the things that you love still somehow manages to affect you and not only you but also in a really weird diffuse sense your prospects your ability to achieve adulthood your and adulthood being here a sense of being taken seriously i think then it makes a lot more sense to me the amount of 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 emotion that oh <laughs> adulthood is that casey yeah I, Hi, Casey. Um, anyway, uh, but yeah, just um, does, does this make it sense does. at all? I like, was, just uh, that there is, um, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think the, um, the the other component of it is Twitter <laughs> and mm-hmm. just the fact that everyone is in the same room together all the time. Yeah. And so if Martin Scorsese says something, some guy who's bases his identity around the Avengers movies will say "fuck you, Martin Scorsese." All your films suck. I've never actually seen them, but I'm sure they suck. <laughs> uh, so we every all these, like you know, typical uh, comic book fans, um, will are in the same box with like people who like Criterion Collection art films and uh, people who like weird Japanese gore films, and we're all constantly in the same space together, and we need to like justify our liking to everyone else because at any point we could be called on it, which is kind of why there's been this weird trend in Marvel film stands to try and get like an Oscar for um, Robert Downey Jr. or for um, the uh, Black Panther movie to try and get it like, get that critically approved stamp on things. So then no one would be able to talk back to them about it being just a, a bunch of guys in leotards hitting each other. And it, no.
1: it, it's one yeah. of those things where I, I I'm definitely sympathetic in a certain way to um uh to a lot of those arguments. Being someone who and this this isn't even a brag. I think anyone who reads a lot. I in fact I guarantee everyone on this call has the exact same thing on my bookshelf. Literally, um, I have the Penguin full translation of the Thousand One Arabian Nights, the like the, like three volume, four thousand page thing. And it's next to some manga about spacemen, um, <laughs> and it, so it, it, it's.
0: I've yeah, I've got um, Berserk next to Slaughterhouse Five. Right. Here. So
1: it's. I have I have mm-hmm. plenty of. Oh, next I to have plenty of really uh, like I I absolutely love Justice League and Green Lantern. I'll read anything with that. I love Superman, but also I have uh, the complete uh, Borhe on a shelf, and I have. I have a Wittgenstein's mistress. I own a physical copy of Wittgenstein's mistress. So it's, um,
0: well, but that's a this flex. isn't, I, I use, I have owned one. I saw the years ago, but, but uh, this
1: isn't terribly uncommon for people who read a lot. So I am. And the same thing shows up in film where it's like, it's not uncommon to like something that's very, very mainstream. And then to like, I know it's corny, but I love a beautiful mind. Like, I don't know what it is about it. I'm just like, mm-hmm. that movie makes me cry. Um, but so I understand that a lot of a lot of this impulse comes from the fact that when we are experiencing those pop media, we know what we are getting out of it, even if we cannot articulate it always. And there's this struggle to articulate that happens in literally everyone. In fact, most of the time, what constitutes a good critic isn't necessarily that your brain is good. That's a weird kind of pretentious way to think of it. It's that you can articulate the things that people are already thinking and feeling and resonating with within this work so that people who are not experiencing those can have it become transparent to them. Uh, We tend to value that more in a critical Mm. capacity because people who are already fans know what they're getting out of it, even if they can't put it into words. But when you find someone who's like this this is the thing and the guts and mechanics of it. Then suddenly it makes it undeniable to someone who isn't experiencing it. And it makes it perhaps easier for them to feel that. Um, But I do think sometimes we then think that this means that all work has to provide us the same type of thing. And that I think is the thing that gets us into trouble both on. So I was at small press uh, expo recently, and I was talking to some friends there um, about how I like you, Max, I'll watch the Marvel movies. I haven't seen one in theaters in a long, long time, but you know i'll I'll watch them on Netflix, and i I know what I'm going there to get. And to diminutize it by saying I'm going there to get spectacle really undervalues like what spectacle is in terms of like, pure food for the imagination. Like it sounds weird to say mm-hmm. like, yeah, no, I want to see crazy colors and bizarre color fields and geometric patterns. But it's like people spend a lot of time acquiring illegal drugs to experience exactly the same thing. Like clearly this huh. is a thing that we value. <laughs> like um, David Lynch puts in tons <laughs> of Absolutely. these I mean... moments of spectacle that aren't, I got into an argument with someone about this recently. Most of the time, David Lynch isn't thinking in terms of like a logical, rational symbolism. It's the intuitive dream symbolism where it's like i may not know why i'm putting this in here but i know it makes me feel something and i know that thing that i feel feels resonant with this other stuff so it's going to go in together um
0: yeah he's he's ultimately doing oh this this is cool this is a cool idea i've had while doing transcendental meditation therefore it's in my show now the same way that michael bay says explosions are cool a guy's Rappling out of Ospreys are cool. I'll and have take, those in my films. It, it doesn't takes matter a, what they, it takes the a, context It takes a weird cool. kind
1: of chauvinism to look, to feel that either one of those are getting denigrated when it's like, no, that's, that is the creative process. And that is our resonant response to creative work. It's, it's a weird kind of chauvinism and, to be like, no, I, when I'm watching Transformers, I'm not getting what those weirdo pretentious, uh, uh, Twin Peaks likers get out of it Inland Empire was a mess I don't understand it And likewise it's not A knock on David Lynch when you go like There is some absolutely Bizarre dream logic craft In the mainstream uh, Transformers Films especially as they go on The most recent one had Merlin Merlin the wizard <laughs> Was in a Transformers film
2: Wait Really? <laughs> was, that, was that the no? So- no
1: that was uh Oh. Uh, I forgot what it's—the last uh, night or something.
0: Uh, of, yeah, also, night. there was a dragon.
1: Oh, okay. I also, so Optimus Prime yeah. got but, uh, possessed so... by an evil sword.
3: <laughs> so this may be this may be a little uh, this may be a stretch, but I think this some of this actually does relate back to our book in a way. Um, I was going to say that, the same that's... thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was actually
3: um, that feeling of. Um, having to think in public and being under a sort of constant surveillance and everything being in the same room. Um, I don't know if you felt this way or not, but one thing that I definitely got out of taking our correspondence in a more like writing letters, sort of physical ones uh, getting like actual words and actual piece of paper and sending them out so that nobody could, else could see them was this feeling of like, okay, we're actually going into another room we're going to have another conversation that people on Twitter are not going to be watching and that randos are not necessarily going to jump into at any given moment. It was a little bit of a freedom from the sense that at any given point, any person, no matter how tangentially connected to you, could jump into your conversation, have something to say about it, and have an opinion about why you're terribly wrong. Uh, and, and, and that sort of tension between personal privacy, developing friendship, um, the need to perform, all felt really live in me as we were coming up with the notions of what Time War was going to be. I don't know if you had a similar experience.
2: Oh, all the time. But yes, absolutely. That that in particular. Just uh, I I mean, you know, the thing is that as as we keep talking about this, Max, like just describing and okay, as we keep talking about this, and as I uh, you know, retreat farther and farther away from Twitter into my desperately needed hiatus, um, the just the fact that you can describe that as a normal state of affairs, that oh yeah, it's just a normal feature of life now that you will be having conversations thoughtfully about something with your friends and anyone is with social sanction uh, able to just jump in and ruin your day is awful it's so mm-hmm. bad it's so bad that that is such a normal thing um and uh but but definitely there was so that that sense that you could figure out what you think about something in a way that is like journaling but with another person there. Um yeah. was also it it felt it it felt very precious and, and precious in the sense of treasure, not in the sense of denigrating something. Um but also I, I'm reminded too of um when, especially when we were talking about the uh about Proust earlier, um that I I wrote a story called Madeleine uh that was I think in the packet of stories that I sent you that like basically ended the reason Max and I ended up um, writing together was in part the fact that as we were writing letters at one point um, Max was writing me letters while he was on tour for a book Um, so he would be writing letters and I'd be receiving them but I couldn't reply back to him because he was always on the move Uh, and at that point Uh, he started reading uh, short stories of mine that I'd sent him instead. And one of them was Madeleine, which is a story about a woman who, um, as a consequence of a of a clinical trial for uh, Alzheimer's medication gone wrong, uh, starts to experience these unnervingly real hallucinations where she seems to be going back in time through like sensory uh, triggers. So she you know might drink a glass of warm milk and suddenly find that she's five years old again uh and uh and and drinking a glass of milk you know and there's a kind of just uh, that oh the thing the experience of memory being so unsettling and vivid has meant that you have actually traveled into a weird back in time thing um but that story was was very much about in in a lot of ways the experience of new friendship and of the way that when you become friends with someone uh and and have all of the new relationship energy that comes with that uh that you do start sharing your histories with each other uh and you start sort of trying to um not retrofit but in, by by virtue of sharing your histories together there's an implicit kind of I wonder where I was when you were experiencing this thing, you know, um, a kind of mm-hmm. like we, we did not know each other yet. But I mean, it, it's it's still sort of blows my mind that we did not know each other, but we were in the same place in 2012 at the World Fantasy Convention in almost Toronto. Um, in uh, the yeah, same room. We were in the same room and we didn't know each other. And it's super weird to me. And that was, you know, two full years before we would actually meet uh, each other. Um, and it's it's wacky that way. So there there is a kind of uh, sense of like time travel weirdly in that as well. But but in that same space of. Wanting to share yourself with a new person, um, but in a way that is private and in a way that is only for this person, Uh, And that involves allowing this person into your history, which your experience of is entirely private, like even when other people, you know, make up your history, your experience of it is still so uniquely your own, that the idea that you might be sharing that with someone is this uh, is this kind of very vulnerable and intimate time travel. I think this was still somehow yep. about what we were
3: talking about, but yeah. Yeah, you, yeah no, that a feeling a... of sort of re- reading someone into your life and finding where they are in yours. And that, that sort of shows up in the book a little bit, too. Red references sort of running across people in strange corners of the cloud. Um, and it, it sometimes does feel like that, that you can meet someone and realize they've been a force in your life. Maybe even if they weren't there or there's weird correspondences thematic more than causal that, oh, yeah. Um,
4: yeah. that, that <laughs> sort of
3: bind the two of you or even the moment where you start comparing where you were at particular junctures of world history you know well, what were you doing doing during the northwards earthquake or something like that or i wasn't even aware that was a thing and then you sort of find one another's life stories sort of in your own experience and memory
0: it's a it's a little like what the the agency in the garden are doing in that. Their- time war right mm-hmm. it's um we're trying to create this there's these multiplicity of timelines where everything is going off its own direction but we're trying to bring it together into one um we're trying to get a one just one timeline this is the right one right here by sharing all these memories with each other and then people sharing those memories other uh, with other people and then just kind of bridging the uh, i think you call it like braiding the different timelines
2: yeah so, i
3: mean it's the 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 sort of it comes out of a position of a desire for control which is often at least in my experience the kind of flip side of anxiety that you really desperately need to be able to say what the world is um, mm. so that it you know that it can't be something else if it isn't something mm. else
0: yeah I was going to bring up uh, Evangelion again there. For oh, yeah, still. fair enough. But, yeah. um, but um, I think that's uh, bringing it back in a, a callback to the earlier episode where talking almost exclusively about Evangelion was, is a good place to, to end this. So, um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, thanks for writing this book. Thanks for writing it together, um, which I'm sure was, must have been like, incredibly fun. I don't know why more writers don't work together.
2: It was so much um, fun. It was, it was really, really yeah, wonderful.
0: I bet it was absolutely yeah. awesome. And uh, am I right in thinking you did it in a gazebo? Yes, that is, that's yeah. even cooler. Why I, <laughs> I, I should do loads of stuff in gazebos. It was,
2: it was great. Was in fact, crucial.
0: Yes, I bet uh, it was. Yeah, yep. but um, yeah. So, folks at home, go out and pick up from jf uh, Joe or you know the bad place you can get books online uh your local, how,
2: waterstones.
0: <laughs> local waterstones yeah or um yeah. Uh, you could go if you're in portland go to powell's powell's is a great bookshop um but uh yeah it absolutely staggeringly good novel and just so beautifully written like i could definitely tell one of you is a, a like a major poet as well because the, <laughs> the um yeah the, the the writing in this is just damn god Thank you um, so much. Thank yeah, you. If there's a if there's a single person in the world who still thinks sci-fi can't be literary, then this is going to kill him dead. Uh, so, <laughs> which you <they> kind of <laughs> deserve at this point, because you know you should have you should have got over that uh, idea years ago. But um, yeah, <laughs> if you're not already,
3: then you deserve what you get.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, yeah, Max will kill you with his uh, Chinese sword.
2: <laughs> I have to say, both the swords are in fact Max's swords. Um, I, 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 yeah, I
0: kind of packed him as a sword guy. I do, I do actually I only own, have...
2: I don't have
3: that guy. many.
0: How true. many do you own, total?
3: Uh, so I've got those. Those are the only two metals that I have in the house. I have one or two sort of wooden practice swords that have stuck around from various things that I've done in the past, and I have some fencing equipment and storage somewhere.
0: Nice. Okay.
2: So I have two rapiers, uh, two like 17th century style rapiers, uh, and how many daggers? One, three, four. I have a lot of daggers, uh, but uh, but only two swords. But crucially, when we took that photo, we were both in the states, uh, so Max's swords were the only ones that were going to be available because bringing swords across the border was not something I was going to attempt.
0: Uh, I would like to see a rapier in there, like, like a very, like one with a very ornate foil. I, I would like to see that, but maybe for maybe for the beautiful sequel,
2: swept tilt, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> but um, yeah, folks, home. Go out and buy this book, and um, we're going to end the episode as we we tend to do by playing some music that our guests and most of the people listening will probably hate because it's. <laughs> uh, it's going to be an avant-garde black metal band from, I believe, Switzerland. Um, they're called Sh- Shamashk. Um Excellent. Yeah, they uh, they've been around a while. Langdon is a big fan of them, but unfortunately, his computer broke, so he can't tell you how much he loves them. He would probably say they are tight, and they're really into Satan. So, um, yeah. Do you do you love? I'd hate uh, to be
2: loosened, also into Satan. So yeah. <laughs>
0: So uh, yeah, you don't want to be like a casual Satanist, um, but um, they've got a new album out called "Raised into Raised Like Razors." Uh, they're going to be at the Decibel Metal and Beer Fest in Los Angeles this December. So if you like metal and beer, then um, two great tastes that do go well together. And um, yeah, this is the fir- This is the title track of it, and it's it's long. It's weird. It's probably about the devil. You're going to be into it. So, yeah, here's, here's Shamash. Go out and buy This How You Lose Time War. Come back next week for... We're going to be talking to Hannah Nina Jameson about her book The Last, which is a thriller that takes place after the end of the world. It's really good. Um, It's much, much longer than uh, Time War, which is a breezy, like, 200 pages. This one's like 400. So I'm going to be pretty tired next week, but it's it's also a damn good book. So, oh, and go back and listen to our episode with uh Tamsin Muir, where she talks about Gideon the Ninth, because a I must she, to
2: that.
0: <laughs> yeah one one she really likes this the uh, you guys's book so really? yeah, she she's the okay. fan I yeah. love her book so two, much two because yes, we talk great. it is so good isn't it uh, two because we talk way more about swords so if you've been digging a sword discourse and we know right. that's like a major thing for our listeners then we we get. We get deep into the trenches of sorts on that one. So do check that out. But here's uh, Shamash.